0: Life's everyday mysteries solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome aboard. The German V2 rocket, a terrifying weapon used during the Second World War, used alcohol as fuel and liquid oxygen as oxidizing agent. How did the Germans produce the alcohol that was needed? That's our question, and it's going to be joined by a second one. Why would someone eat miracle berries? Why would someone eat miracle berries? If you know the answer to one of those questions, 514-790-0800, and of course you can also text to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. I'm also a chemistry professor, and I think that chemistry is the science that ties all the other sciences together because if you have a feel for what molecules can do, which is of course what chemistry is all about, you have a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. And just about everything can be described in terms of, uh, of chemistry. Okay, well, the, this week uh, we passed Valentine's Day and I gave you a few, few Valentine's stories last week, but I wanna follow up with one more which I think is an interesting one, although it is related to Valentine's Day in somewhat of a circuitous way. Matt Valentine of Richmond, Virginia, loved his wife. He was totally distraught when she fell ill and appeared to be withering away, unable to eat solid foods. Back then in 1870, uh, doctors were unable to offer much help. So Matt decided to take matters into his own hands. He had some rudimentary familiarity with nutritional science, which at the time embraced the notion of muscle to muscle. And uh, that idea had been around since the ancient Greeks down the muscular flesh of animals in the hope of gaining strength. Just extract the essence of meat was the idea that now occurred to Valentine. Perhaps meat juice, would be the key to restoring his wife's strength. The soon-to-be inventor reportedly went down to his basement and worked out a method of cooking meat and squeezing out its juice. Administering the concoction to his wife led to a remarkable improvement from which Valentine thought the public should benefit. Within a year, he had set up a company and began producing Valentine's Meat Juice, sold in what would become an iconic pear-shaped amber bottle booming sales following enthusiastic testimonials from patients and physicians made valentine a wealthy man the rather remarkable feature of this story is that valentine seems to have reinvented the wheel he was apparently unfamiliar with liebig's extract of meat that had been introduced in europe in 1865 based upon the ideas of German chemist, Justus von Liebig, who at the time was one of the world's leading scientists. Liebig had discovered the presence of a compound of nitrogen in urine, and postulated that these stemmed from the breakdown of muscle during activity, since muscle was known to consist of nitrogen-containing proteins. He was concerned that many people could not afford to eat meat, Uh, that was needed to sustain health. And in 1847, he began to experiment with developing concentrated, affordable, nutritious meat substitutes. Liebig found that soaking lean meat in a vigorously stirred dilute hydrochloric acid solution resulted in a paste that could be strained to yield a concentrated meat extract. When Liebig published his method, Druggists and physicians began to make small batches of what they called beef tea. In 1851, physician William Benecke reported in The Lancet his successful use of the tea in the treatment of tuberculosis, typhus, and various stomach derangements. Liebig concurred, championing the use of beef tea as medicine, but recognized that there was little commercial potential for the extract, since the process of making it was tedious and European beef was expensive. George Gibert, a German engineer who had built roads in Brazil, now approached Liebig with a possible solution. Lots of cattle were being raised in South America, mostly for their hides, with the meat often being discarded. Labor was also cheap. Gibert suggested buying cattle farms in South America and shipping machinery from Europe to produce the extract. Liebig liked the idea. In 1865, the Liebig extract of meat company was established, and soon the product hit the marketplace. At first, it was sold as a remedy for weakness and digestive disorders, but soon claims became more elaborate. Liebig himself touted its ability to allay what he called brain excitement, and at a British pharmaceutical conference, speakers asserted that probably no food available was as effective at restoring the tissues of the sick. Copycat products, such as Bovril, also mushroomed, with Liebig warning of imitators and urging consumers to buy only the genuine version, which was inspected by himself and featured his signature on the label. As the meat extracts increased in popularity, some scientists began to look on them with a wary eye, especially after analyses showed that Liebig's extract actually contained little protein. And then in 1868, German physiologist Edward Kemmerich published his results of an experiment in which dogs exclusively fed on the meat extract soon died. Then in 1872, physician Edward Smith, declared that Liebig's extract lacked the nutrients of meat and was like the play of Hamlet without the character of Hamlet. (laughs) Not a bad expression. That attack paled in comparison with the rhetoric of another physician, Milner Fothergill, who opined that all the bloodshed caused by the warlike ambition of Napoleon is as nothing compared to the myriads of persons who have sunk into their graves from a misplaced confidence in beef tea. In light of the fading aura of the extract as a medicine, the Liebig company switched to promoting it as inexpensive source of meat flavor that sailors, explorers, soldiers, and domestic cooks could use to produce a nutritious and tasty soup by adding potatoes and vegetables to a broth made from the extract. Then came the brilliant move by introducing Liebig trading cards that came with each bottle. These were beautifully colored cards that at first depicted kitchen scenes with cooks preparing soup with ease, but then expanded into portrayals of scientists, writers, composers, and idyllic historical scenes. The cards became a phenomenon among collectors and are regarded as one of the most successful advertising campaigns in history. The Liebig Meat Extract Company no longer exists, but one of its products, the Oxo Bouillon Cube, developed in 1911 is still around, advertised in an ingenious fashion. In 1920, the Liebig company purchased a building in London that featured a tower that they planned to equip with an illuminated advertising sign. When permission for this was refused, three windows on the tower were redesigned to be shaped like the letters O and X to spell out OXO. As far as Mrs. Valentine goes, she passed away just two years after her husband introduced his meat juice. But the profits from the product were enough to allow him to indulge in his passion for collecting artifacts that were eventually displayed in the Valentine Museum in Richmond. Founded in 1898, the museum that meat juice built has become major attraction with exhibits depicting the city's rich history. And, Today, we make use of this idea too, because you can get all kinds of powders uh, that you add into soup to bring out flavor. And those are all sort of extracts of, of meat. You can make chicken soup without ever putting any chicken into it. And the truth is, it isn't even bad. And as far as the collectible cards go, I have some. Uh, I bought them on, on Etsy and they really are very, very pretty. And uh, I'm not going to get into collecting all of them because that becomes quite pricey, but they certainly are interesting and they flash back to an epic era in our history. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. All right, well, you guys uh, have shown me what you learned because I have correct answers to both of my questions. Uh, first, the miracle berries. Yes, several people gave me the correct answer. They're used to make sour food taste sweet. And a question about uh, where the Germans got alcohol for the V2, it was, believe it or not, from fermenting potatoes. Any starchy material, of course, like grapes, can be fermented to produce uh, alcohol, and potatoes contain a lot of, of, of starch. They needed a lot of potatoes, and uh, the launch of one V2 required 30 tons of potatoes. And uh, that had a consequence, of course, it ate into the German food supply, and there wasn't very much food available anyway during the Second Second World War. But the V2 was really a fearsome uh, weapon of war. Um, It was the first ever ballistic missile, It had a range of about 200 miles, which really was astounding. And at its uh, apogee, that is at its uh, maximum height, it uh, essentially reached uh, outer space. It was launched from Germany, particularly from Pinemünde on the Baltic Sea, against targets, uh, mostly London. About 1,300 V2s were launched against London. And uh almost as many ag- against Antwerp some 3,300 were launched during the war. And uh, these V2s were really engineering miracles. they really were. I mean if you take a look at the technology that was involved in in the guidance systems and, and uh, in uh, the way the fuel was pumped into the uh, engine, it was really quite uh, quite remarkable. They did do a lot of damage. Uh, it's uh, estimated that they killed about 9,000 people, but more than that died in the production of the V2s because there was a lot of slave labor that was involved. And these were captured prisoners and and, and uh, uh, also gypsies and Jews who, uh, of course, were at the, you know, by the Germans regarded as less than human. And uh, they were, forced into uh, factories to uh, work on on the v2s werner von braun of course was the head of that program and at the end of the war when the americans were coming from one side and the russians from the other german rocket scientists uh, fled to one or the other uh, because hitler had ordered that they needed to be killed. He didn't want their knowledge to fall into Allied uh, hands. Uh, the Americans, I guess, were lucky enough to get Werner Von Braun on their side. And uh, with the help of uh, Disney, they, sat, they sanitized his image and um, that needed sanitizing because uh, Von Braun, of course, knew all about the slave labor that was needed to produce the V2s. And uh, he became the head of the American space program the brilliant head really, because without him, uh, the landing on the moon would certainly have not happened as, um, as quickly. And the first American rocket that put a man into space, that man of course was Alan Shepard, uh, he sat on top of the Redstone rocket. That was only a suborbital 15 minute flight. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was the American response that was sorely needed because the Russians, of course, had already orbited Yuri uh, Gagarin. And uh, that Redstone rocket that launched Alan Shepard into space, where he spent all of about three minutes, uh, that was uh, essentially based upon the V 2 technology. Uh, so the V2 was uh, really a, a phenomenon, a very interesting forerunner of the uh, American uh, space program, but it was worn out of the, born out of the terror of uh, uh, the Second World War. So we did get the answer to both of those uh, questions. And uh, the Miracle Berry, uh, that's an interesting story. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of, of history on on, on this from, from my own personal history. Uh, at one time, I needed a couple of human guinea pigs. And uh, uh, my uh, oldest daughter, my youngest daughter, who now is married and living in Toronto, but she was a teenager. And uh, it was back then that I, I enlisted her and her friend uh, to uh, take part in A task, a simple one. They were to dissolve a little tablet on their tongue and then suck on a lemon wedge. Took a little convincing, but the prospect of being mentioned in the Gazette, as I eventually did, and getting loads of fan mail won them over. They plunked a tablet on their tongue and then with a little trepidation began to attack the lemon. And I watched with uh, anticipation. Were they going to scrunch up their face or would the tablets perform a miracle? a miracle well miracles are pretty hard to come by well i suppose that depends on one's expectations if changing a sour taste to a sweet one falls into the miracle category then my guinea pigs had a chance of experiencing one after all they had just prepped their taste buds with a couple of miracle fruit tablets which come with the claim of being quote magical because they can turn sour food into sweet. And magic was indeed performed. Never before had I seen anyone smile with lemon juice dripping down their face. So where does one get miracle fruit tablets? From the miracle fruit bush, of course. The tablets don't actually grow on the bush, but little berries do. Often referred to as miracle berries, they're a source of miraculin, a protein capable of altering sweet receptors in our taste buds, sensitizing them to chemicals that would ordinarily taste sour. Taste buds are concentrations of cells on the tongue that feature specialized protein molecules called receptors on their surface. These proteins are coiled into specific shapes, ready to interact with food molecules, much as a key fits into a lock. A correct fit triggers activity in the cell that is then sensed by the brain as taste. Thanks in large part to research aimed at developing artificial sweeteners, receptor shapes have uh, been well mapped. And those that accommodate sweet compounds are differently shaped from ones that are turned on by sour substances. A miraculous somehow alters the shape of the sweet receptor making activation by sour compounds uh, uh, possible. So uh, it was really an interesting uh, experiment because uh, both my daughter and her friend uh, said that indeed they, did not pick up any sour taste from the lemon. It did indeed uh, taste uh, sweet. So uh, that was interesting sort of an at-home experiment that we carried out uh, to show the effects of, uh, of Miraculin and uh, the amazing thing about these uh, miracle berries. And if anyone is interested in doing their own experiment, uh, these days, of course, What do you do? You do for anything else. You go on Google and you find uh, uh, various websites that will sell you uh, the miracle fruit little tablets. All right. So we had answer to those uh, questions, which means, of course, that I do have to ask you a couple of others. What is the most toxic substance known? What is the most toxic substance known? And why are neanderthals so called if you know the answer to either one of those you can text us 514-800 or you give us a call 514-790-0800 and of course you can also call with whatever other question you may have about science you're not restricted to having to answer the questions but right now Time to check what's happening in the world. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. So tell me, where would we be without Kenny on the line? Hi, Kenny. Dr. Joe, how are you? Okay, and you? Good. Uh, What is the the, uh, acid substance called? The The most toxic substance. Polydental hydrogen, pH. The most toxic substance? Substance is the uh, pH hydrogen. No. no. No, your record is no. No, your record is intact for getting things wrong again. We'll we'll speak to you next week. All right. But I think we also have Jean Pierre on the line. Jean Pierre. Uh, hello, Doctor Joe. Hi. Uh, I have a uh, theory for what the name of the river was came from. The river is called uh, Neander because it was named in honor of the German poet who was named Neumann. And the people in the valley, the Tal, Tal is a valley in German, it means a watershed. And they, when, German, when the poet died, they named, uh, it's all mixed up in my, in my brain, they, the people named the river uh, Neander in, in the honor of Neumann and uh, the guy with uh, the skeleton which was unearthed was named the Neanderthal man. It's a little bit confused. Yes, (laughs) that was kind of confusing. I mean, you've got some of the the essence of it. Uh, The Neanderthals, of course, colloquially were known as cavemen and uh, they're an extinct species uh, and they evolved not from humans but in parallel with the, the humans that, 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 that we are. Uh, and uh, Neanderthal 1, the first specimen ever found, uh, was found in 1856 in the Neander Valley, which of course is in Germany. So that's why they were called Neanderthals. And now you're saying that you're, you're giving an explanation for the why the Neander Valley was called Neander Valley, right? I, Which, know I don't know. You, yeah, I, uh, that wasn't my question, but I, I think you may be on the right track. I, I mean, I don't know why the Neander Valley was called Neander Valley, but Neanderthal man the, the, was the, the, called the river that. The name. I guess, I yeah. guess. But anyway, the Neanderthals were so called because the first specimen found in 1865 was found in the neander valley in germany so uh, yeah we'll give you credit for getting that one right okay thanks very much All right, let me get to a a question here that I was asked, uh, a text, and I I imagine you guys these days rather ask your questions by text than by phoning in. That's the way things are going, right? I mean, it's it's all texting and and Instagramming and TikToking, whatever, and people resist talking to others as human to human. Anyway, uh, a question that I had was about whether or not there's any scientific evidence that wearing a smartwatch has any ill effect on one's health. Uh, I don't think so. I have never seen such a connection, but I bet that if you go on on Google, you will find numerous websites that tell us that we're poisoning ourselves by wearing um, a, a smartwatch. Just as there are numerous websites that tell us that that cell phones are are deadly, uh, or that just about anything else in our life is doing us uh, in, uh, no. So I, I have no knowledge of any legitimate uh, studies that have shown that there's any risk associated with uh, watches. Uh, I guess like like you know the Apple Watch, etc. Uh, then I also asked a question about uh, the most toxic substance and i had an answer that it is snake venom no it is not that there are some snakes that really do have very very uh, toxic uh, venoms but uh, the one that we are knowledgeable about as being the most toxic substance known is not snake venom and it is actually far more toxic than uh, than snake venom all right so that question is still out there for you guys to answer <clears throat> but another question that i was asked was about the uh, the wax on fruit uh you pick an apple off a tree you can try this buff it a little and it will shine And that's because that fruit is coated with a layer of natural wax that protects it from drying out and helps to prevent uh, fungi from getting a foothold. What is that wax? It's a mixture of, of some 50 different compounds. And believe it or not, these have been analyzed. They fall into a category we know as esters. And those of you who have taken some organic chemistry will recognize that term. There are also alcohols like heptacosinol and malol well as hydrocarbons like uh, triacontane anyway uh, that compound can also be found in petroleum and is sometimes applied to fruit to supplement its natural wax in that case chemophobes kick and scream about a petroleum derivative being applied to their fruit but there's no difference between the triacontane produced by an apple isolated, uh, and that isolated from petroleum. Natural wax also contains compounds in the triterpenoid family. Ursolic acid has a variety of biochemical effects that have been demonstrated in laboratory experiments. For example, it can inhibit the proliferation of various cancer cells, and also has weak aromatase inhibitor activity aromatase is an enzyme that leads to the synthesis of estradiol, the body's main estrogen that is implicated in some cancers. This of course does not mean that the amount of ursolic acid in the peel of an apple can have beneficial effect on human health, but at least it's another plus for eating apples. Now, after apples are picked, they're washed before they appear in the supermarket to remove dirt and chemical residues. And that process also removes the wax since the waxy layer prevents the moisture in the apple from escaping, its loss shortens the storage time for the fruit. So producers therefore spray the fruit with a thin layer of wax to prevent such moisture loss, as well as to make the apple look more appealing. And that uh, layer is applied very thin, only uh, about three milligrams of wax coat an apple. There are several different types of wax that are used, Uh, mostly carnauba wax that comes from the leaves of the Brazilian palm. Uh, Then there's candelilla wax from a desert plant and uh, also food grade shellac. And that comes from the Indian lag bug. There are also some synthetic esters made by combining sucrose with fatty acids. Polyethylene, the same plastic used to make disposable shopping bags can also be applied in a very thin layer. Interestingly, this can be termed as being vegan because it is made from ethylene, which in turn is made from ethanol that is produced by the fermentation of corn. A Trace of an emulsifier, oleate, is added to allow the wax to be spread in a thin layer uh although of course again you can go on google and you'll find all kinds of scare stories about the wax uh but there's uh, again no evidence that i'm aware of uh that would raise any sort of uh, concern so that's the story of the wax on the apple time again to check traffic you're listening to the dr joe show hey gee you guys are smart I have a couple of uh, correct answers for the most toxic substance known, and also a couple that are close to but but not completely right. Uh, someone suggested nicotine, which is indeed highly toxic, uh, ricin, which is found in uh, castor uh, beans, but the correct answer is botulinum toxin. That's the toxin produced by Clostridium botulinum, which is a bacterium. It's an anaerobic bacterium, which means that it can multiply in conditions when there's no uh, oxygen. And uh, it is unbelievably toxic. Uh, Roughly 10 to the minus 7 grams, that's a tenth of a milligram. I mean, that would essentially be invisible. And that would be fatal to a 70 kilogram person. It was uh, first identified as a cause of food poisoning uh, due to incorrectly prepared sausage because the environment inside of a sausage is anaerobic. No air circulates there. And uh, the Latin word for sausage is botulus so that's why it's called botulinum toxin, and that was first identified in the late 18th uh, century. Uh, Today, we know that there are several botulinum toxins. Um, One of them, the so-called type A, is the most potent, and they're all in the family of polypeptides, which means that they consist of chains of amino acids that are uh, joined together, and death comes from muscle paralysis, and uh, essentially, it, it is because uh, the botulinum toxin prevents the release of uh, uh, acetylcholine, which is the uh, molecule that signals muscles to to uh, contract. So if uh, your muscles can't contract, uh, your lungs can't function and basically you suffocate. So yes, that is the most toxic substance that is is known. Then I also had a very interesting question about whether any oranges are dyed. Uh, actually, legally, they they can be dyed. Uh, a dye called citrus number two is allowed on, on oranges as uh, that uh, are not destined to be juiced. They're not allowed on, on juice oranges, but they're allowed on, on eating oranges. Uh, now, this is not the case everywhere. Oranges that are grown in Arizona or California are not allowed to have dyes. Florida oranges in theory are, but in practice, this is very rarely done. Uh, sometimes oranges are picked when they are green and uh, they, they can then be turned orange in one of two ways. You can either expose them to ethylene gas, which is the natural hormone that the orange produces anyway to, uh, to bring on its color, or they can be sprayed with um, uh, citrus number two. But that is very, very rarely done. And if it is done, uh, the box in which the oranges come has to be so labeled. And uh, when the oranges are put out in the supermarket, it also has to be labeled as, as dyed. Uh, but I, I've not seen that for years and years and years. So I would say now that the chance that you're oranges are dyed is is vanishingly uh, small. But in any case, uh, that dye is uh, a dye that uh, is legally allowed to be used, which means that it has passed the muster. Now, of course, there are people who question the the muster uh, from Health Canada and from the FDA. And there are many questions asked about uh, the safety of food dyes. And uh, on uh, on Friday, uh, Marketplace, which is an excellent show, uh, had a whole segment on um, food additives that are allowed in uh, Canada and are not allowed in Europe, and they focused on, on food dyes. <laughs> uh, the show was actually, you know, Marketplace, as I said, is generally an excellent show, but uh, this one needs, uh, bit of criticism, which uh, I will do this week. Uh, I think I will do uh, one of my videos on uh, on this whole business because uh, they, they they kind of distorted the situation somewhat. Uh, certainly it is true that there are dyes that are not allowed in, uh, in Europe that are uh, used in, in Canada uh and that is because uh you know the the data is all over the place and it depends on how you evaluate uh, the data but anyway they had some kids three kids and uh, you know they were asked to look at the canadian version and the uh, european version of things like nmms MMs, and ms and skittles and, and doritos etc and the European versions looked more bland because they don't use synthetic dyes. They, they use some uh, natural uh, colorants. And the kids were, of course, able to pick that out. They, they saw that the uh, Canadian foods were uh, more attractive because they were more brilliantly colored. And then they were also asked to taste them. And uh, they said that the uh, European ones tasted better well this is where i i, I think there is somewhat of an issue because certainly the dyes do not impart any kind of taste so they the kids i think thought that they had to say that the the ones that were uh, dyed with natural dyes are, are supposed to taste better uh, i don't think that there one one can actually detect a difference in um, in taste and uh <clears throat> To tell you the truth, I, I am, as I've said many times, I am no fan of, uh, of food dyes. And uh, that's because they don't do anything except uh, provide a, you know cosmetics for, for the food. So when we look at things like like preservatives, we look at emulsifiers, etc, while there may be some issues with them, uh, we evaluate them in terms of risk-benefit uh, ratio to see you know, whether or not uh, we should have any concerns. I mean, uh, while there may be some minor concerns about preservatives, there are major concerns about uh, bacteria in, in our, our food. So um, as far as the, the food dyes go, I think we can very well live without them because they have no nutritional value but that does not mean that they are dangerous they were going on and on 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 marketplace about how the european products have a warning on there that the dyes may be linked to attention deficit disorder in children uh, etc and they were saying well why don't we have such warnings in canada because the evidence is not clear and furthermore, if you want to put warnings on things like Skittles and M&Ms and Doritos, the warning should be do not eat this product because there are far more important nutritional reasons to stay away from those uh, than the food dyes. Anyway, I'll have uh, more to say about that when I do my video this this week. But that's it. We are all time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.